Hey everybody, this is Charles Hain here for the No Film School podcast for the week of April 29th, 2021. I'm here with Editor-in-Chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. And writer and filmmaker, Kath Tolentino. Hello. And we're going to talk about, well, the Oscars, because we gotta. Then we're going to talk about Apple getting sued over their use of the word buy. We're going to be talking about, so you're producing a feature, what do you do now? We've got all that, and what are the films that stunned us this week on the No Film School podcast? All right, so this week, a weird, weird pandemic Oscars happened. I got nothing else on this. I literally care so little about the Oscars. I remember in high school... My high school girlfriend's mom was like, are you so excited about the Oscars this weekend? I know you're really into movies. And I literally was like, it was the first time in my life anyone had even asked me if I was watching the Oscars. We didn't grow up in an Oscars house. I didn't, like, they weren't really on my radar. They continue to not be on my radar. It was fun when I lived in LA because someone would throw a big Oscars party. But you were never watching the Oscars at the Oscars party. You were, like, eating snacks and goofing off on the lawn. Like, I literally have never gotten that into the Oscars somehow. Uh, same. Yeah. <laughs> well, at the risk of, uh, okay, I'll, I'll try and come at this a different way then, because I think I'm at the same place as you in terms of my general Oscar m- mehness. But here's the thing. Uh, having grown up and lived in LA all my life and had industry folks and such been around this forever, yeah, it's always been a part of my life. Oscar watching is a big thing. When I was kids, we would go to other people's houses, watch the Oscars. People do Oscar pools and all that. I think I know people who've won Oscars, actually, now that I think about it. I've held an Oscar. I've been to the house of people who won Oscars. Anyway, not to not to brag, but not that those are not bragworthy things. But anyway, I just think it's a silly endeavor. And I and I've said before that it's the that Charles, your your requote of a famous quote. Comparison is the thief of joy applies. Like, I don't think it's a grouchy thing to not like the Oscars. I think it's like a life affirming anti grouchy thing. I think the, the Oscars becomes grouchy. We covered at No Film School, we covered, you know, the nominees. This was a historic year in terms of diversity, which is great. I think the best thing, and I've said it before, you can say about the Oscars is that it can bring attention to movies people might not see otherwise. But here's the problem the Oscar ratings this year hit a historic low. The pandemic obviously had so much to do with that. I'm sure we all agree. But when you look back at the trends, the ratings were dipping. And now Nielsen ratings also like worst metric ever probably. But still, it's been a consistent measurement tool. So we'll use it. The ratings have dipped and dipped and dipped and dipped. And there's been a couple like little spurts of life, but pretty much this is a trend. You know, the other trend is that the box office numbers behind the best picture winner have consistently dropped. Again, 2020, 2021, these are years where box office numbers are low anyway. But the drop from, say, 2001, 2002, 2003 to even 2016, down, 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 down. So I think part of what's happening is the whole industry is changing. This is a bellwether for just what box office numbers look like, the medium of feature film, um, the the way people experience their stories and content. But I think it's worth considering that as we address a community of, of content creators, young and old, 
this is not this format and this self-congratulatory process about like just the inside of this industry telling itself like this is what we think we did best this year. It's not a recipe for success in terms of getting these movies to more people. And so I think maybe it's time to look at uh, new ways, better ways. And it's time if you aren't already ignoring the Oscars to start to ignore them because more and more people don't care about them. I love that our conversation has taken this turn because when we said yesterday that we were going to talk about the Oscars on this podcast, I was like, oh man, I just have nothing to say about the Oscars. And it's just so funny that all three of us like feel the same way. Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm excited that a woman of color won. I mean, it seems like I can't believe it's 2021 and that's the first time. And like, great. Yay. Yeah. And apparently the movie is good. And like, you know, other movies I liked got nominated. But like beyond that, like. Charles, didn't we talk about how Ryan Coogler had a comment about the diversity that was like, I don't want to put words in his mouth. He essentially was saying that it was like, great, but too little too late. Again, I'm not I'm not directly quoting him. And I feel like it's sort of, or it was just kind of like, a, what took you so long? And I agree with that sentiment. It, well, I mean, I don't remember his exact quote, but it's also the easiest thing to change. Like, Awarding a few women of color and, and you know, giving more black, uh, black directors awards is like the easiest thing to change. But until the actual numbers of the people making the work are representative of our society, and that's the much harder, longer thing that will take to change, is like, who is who are all the studio heads? And do the studio heads look like America? And do all of the studio directors look like America? And do all of, like, that is just a much longer, harder amount of work. And so, like... The award shows should have been the fastest, easiest thing to change. And there the fact that we're well just said. now getting to that is crazy because you're like, no, this should have happened so long ago. But like this was recent- you're right. The easiest thing to do. The hardest thing to do was to actually have the machine that builds movies and television reflect the population at large, which it still very much does not. Oh, did you guys know that J.D. Power and Associates, that thing we used to see in ads for cars when we were kids, is just a totally made up thing so that they can brag about it in in ads for cars? When they're like, J.D. Power and Associates gave us this award five years in a row, they just made that up so they could give themselves awards. You mean like the Academy Awards? I mean, I'm not saying there's a direct <laughs> parallel. <laughs> Someone said that like being famous in 2020 – is nothing like being famous in like the 1970s or 80s or even 90s. <clears throat> there was like a sort of like world fame that you would achieve at that time that even now, you know, sure, we have people like Beyonce, for example, but like for the most part, you know, you don't have that kind of like superstardom because everyone's watching different things. Uh, you know, my, my cousin watches Minecraft videos and that's all he watches. He has no interest in going to the movies. Um, <laughs> you are touching on what I think is a very big part of what is making the the slow decline of interest in the Academy Awards, which is the celebrity aspect. You just touched on something I love, which is how much celebrity has changed. If you go back in time to even like the golden age of movies, which would have been the 1930s or the silent era, what a star was then is so completely different than what a star is now. And the size of that star, the size of that like impact, because there were so few mediums where you could see a face that many places. Like it's just hard for us to fully contextualize that shift. And it, and it gets down to the minutia, like you just said, of things like social media, the Oscars 
being a televised event, go back 40 years to when there are not that many channels that you can watch and there's only things on when they're on. There's nothing you can watch on TV that's pre-recorded and add to it that this is the only time you're going to see all these stars that you only ever see in movies when you go to the theater and see them playing a part in a movie. You're going to see them as themselves. You're going to see the star sitting at a table, wearing a tux or whatever, going up and accepting an award, giving a speech. When else are you going to see it? Maybe on a talk show, which is also why talk shows were important. But my point is, your point that I'm elaborating on really, is just that because now they're talking to us on Twitter nonstop, that's not that exciting anymore. Right. <laughs> like seeing them, seeing them show up and do some really bad jokes that were written for them is not unique. Yeah, I mean, everything has changed, right? Like even magazines, like it used to be, if you wanted to hear what Frank Sinatra thought, you had to read a 30,000 word article by Gay Talese in GQ. In Playboy, or yeah. Yeah, or Playboy. And now it's like, you know, we get to hear, I mean, Frank Sinatra is dead, but the, the, the modern day equivalents, we get to hear all of their thoughts about everything all the time. So access is different. Um, I mean, it's also just a reminder that like, you know, um, before Game of Thrones, the last big like, pop culture event was the end of breaking bad and like i remember like in la like the streets were quiet that night i was like running late to watch it at a friend's house and i was like where's all the traffic and i was like oh everybody's somewhere watching the end of breaking bad and then the next day i read an article that was like you know two million americans all watched the end of breaking bad last night and four million americans watched a mid-season rerun of duck dynasty and i was like <laughs> oh yeah like, oh my god these things we think of as so big, like literally, I feel like I'm the last person on earth to see Nomad Land, and I really want to see it. I just haven't seen it because I have a two year old and she's fighting bedtime. And so by the time she's asleep, I'm asleep. So I haven't seen a movie in like six months, but I really want to watch it. And everyone I know has watched it, and everyone I know talks about how good it is. And everyone I know is like, if you if you make a movie where the worst thing in it is David Strathairn, you've done like an amazing feat. And I'm like, I love David Strathairn. <laughs> I want to see him be the weakest part of a movie because apparently he's like a normal conventional plot, and it feels weird to have a normal plot in the middle of the movie. But he's still a great actor, and so like Nomadland feels huge to me. So it winning is completely unsurprising. I'm going to guess there's a lot of people that have never heard of Nomad. Oh, for sure. Yeah. My favorite, that's the, that's, favorite yeah. related anecdote back when Arcade Fire won like best album of the year at the Grammys, there was this whole meme swarm about newscasters across the U.S. asking who is Arcade Flyer. <laughs> like, they just had never heard of them. And like, to, that was like one of my favorite bands. And like, you know, I never, it's just such a reminder, like no one watches the Grammys either. Uh, and like everyone's, <laughs> everyone's listening to different music. Everyone's watching different stuff. It's totally it's true. Like, meaningless. The kids are all like you said, like kids, kids, like, like young ones, as well as like the teens, as well as what is now like becoming a part of the workforce, which seems like a kid to me, but it's like tw Gen Z, I guess they don't, they're more interested in YouTube, like a hundred thousand percent. Like, th like movies are books to them. Like, it's an old medium and an old format. Does it still have a place? Of course. Well, can it still thrive? Are there still ones they're going to want to see? But it's all like this. All we're talking about here is all the way that monoculture has vanished to a large extent. We've talked about it on the podcast a lot, and I still love you know because we're film for filmmakers, but. There's also a part of this podcast at No Film School that's always going to be about education 
and the history. And I still think it's crazy when you compare modern stardom to what stardom's movie stardom origin and celebrity is. Like, again, think about a world that Charlie Chaplin existed in. No television, <laughs> no phones, like pictures, like he, like we're not far removed from the cowboy era. And this is a face that is suddenly everywhere, massive face. And all people around the world recognize it. That That's a crazy, unheard of thing, launching into that kind of stardom. So now that's not, that's just not a big deal at all. I will say there's one area of monoculture left, and that is memes. <laughs> and we all got some great memes today on our feeds from the Oscars. My favorite, of course, is uh, Yoon Yu Jung saying, why would I smell Brad Pitt? I'm not a dog. <laughs> In response to uh, a red carpet interviewer asking her what Brad Pitt smelled like, which is like my favorite. Like, it just made me so happy. Like, such a great response to like the most inane, especially because like, yes, Brad Pitt is great, but Brad Pitt's production company also produced Minari. So like, there are professional relationships there. It's not just like she's getting an award from it. Like, uh, mm. red carpet questions. Moving on. <laughs> Apple is getting sued. For saying that you own a movie you buy on the iTunes store. So there's a class action suit happening right now because when you go to the iTunes store, you can either rent or buy a movie. You can rent a movie for $3.99 or whatever has been negotiated, or you can buy it for like $19.99 or whatnot. However, Apple doesn't own any of those. They license all that content from the content creators, except they own their movies, right? Like uh, that greyhound or whatever with tom hanks but for the most part they don't own it they license it from the filmmakers uh i mean from the content producers so let's say casablanca you buy casablanca on the itunes store they're licensing that from warner media or whoever has the rights when you're buying it at the itunes store you're just really renting it for as long as apple holds the rights so if in five years warner media decides they get in a fight with itunes and they don't want that itunes revenue anymore or, as is more likely, because people will always want that iTunes money, as is more likely, the content license somehow becomes obsolete, like the, the company that owns it goes out of business, that'll happen. Sometimes rights become nebulous where it's impossible to track down where the money should go and the movie might disappear from the iTunes store. You no longer have access to it, even though you technically bought it. And so people are suing over this. There's a class action lawsuit arguing that the word buy means to transfer ownership permanently. And you are not letting us buy this content. You are letting us long-term rent this content. And uh, I think that is really fascinating. I mean, you know, class action lawsuits are complicated things, but this is a um, this is an interesting one, I thought. To me, this is like an open and shut case. I mean, Yeah. Like if I'm going to spend more money on something and be told there's a distinction between renting it and buying it, yeah, absolutely, I should own that content. I got to get in on this class action lawsuit. Have you bought many things on the iTunes store? That's the thing. I've never bought a single thing on the iTunes store. I bought one thing. That's I, I should count. Yeah, then get right? in on it. <laughs> Things meaning movies. Yeah, I bought. I think I even. I, I think I bought a Ryan Johnson movie on the. On the iTunes, I gotta go. Back I definitely have a couple things, but this is a weird thing, and it and it really, what it gets into is the issue of um, streaming libraries. We cinephiles, which of which I assume many of you are out there, 
uh, like to own some of these things. Like I still, I'm looking up at a shelf of DVDs and Blu-rays and even some HD DVDs, sadly, that I still own. And it's really time to get rid of them. But there is this part of me that the physical media of it is like, well, what if, you know, the streaming service that carries all these things I like isn't available to me and I still really want to watch blank. And that argument feels weaker and weaker with every passing month to me, the the argument in favor of keeping DVDs. But I do think it's this, this issue points to the question that a lot of pro physical media fans have, which is like, I want to make sure I really own it. Right. I mean, not to get all like undergraduate smoking too much weed ship a theseus on it. <laughs> what is own, man? <laughs> but like maybe Never just because own. Well, here's the thing. I came of like I, you know, I own like five vinyl records from a brief period in my 20s when I was into vinyl and specifically trying to have a vinyl collection that was just stuff that wasn't digital. Like Vernon Ray's Wasted, which is a great album and is still not on digital. You can only listen to it on vinyl. So like that's my vinyl collection. So for the most part, all the media I ever bought, I was aware was ephemeral as I bought it. Like I bought like 10 VHS tapes, but I knew that VHS didn't last well and old ones were like terrible. And I also knew like DVD was coming and I still bought these VHS tapes because I had a VHS player and even DVD like, you know, old 15 year old DVDs don't play. Right. Like if you've gone back and tried to play a DVD from 20 years ago, many of them degrade over time. Home burn ones degrade in like a year, but like even professional glass mastered pressed DVDs, 20 years old, that's not really considered to be archival by any means and they will unpredictably not play. So there's always felt like an ephemerality to even the concept of ownership. That is like very media dependent though. That is like... A book will also degrade over time, but like you can still read a book that's 60 years old, even if the pages are falling out, the text is still there. If you take good care of it, you know, I mean, I had to throw my parents were recently going through some old boxes and I found some books that were very old, but had like mold damage. So I was like, well, these ones are getting thrown out. But I love the point, Charles, because even though I made a joke about the, you know, like what is ownership? I think it frees us to realize that these items are not like like go of your attachment to these items and these things <laughs> i love it it's zen and it's time to clear the clutter and get rid of all these damn dvds but the movies will i'll always be able to love the movies and see them again and you know that thing of where when you're when you're flipping around on channel nobody does that um or the radio what are channels? nobody does oh man okay there used to be a thing where you would come across something and it would mean more to you to watch it when or hear it when you came across it than it would to have chosen it for yourself at that moment in time i don't know if that can still happen anywhere but it's a cool feeling and that's kind of like the you know maybe the equivalent of it is going onto the streaming app and seeing that they now have something available that you totally had on your shelf but the fact that they now have it available on the streaming app you're like well i want to watch it right now it's right there in front of me i don't think that has ever happened to me (laughs) (laughs) it just doesn't happen but i do the phenomenon doesn't exist but there is a phenomenon but you know what i mean like with the radio 
you you remember listening to the radio a song would come on and you'd think oh i like i'm happy to listen to this whereas there was there's an era where you could have chosen to listen to it at any time because maybe you had it in that cd sleeve that was on the window the mirror above you know sure, your cd about, tower Charles, yeah yes your c yes exactly you're like 40 cd tower <laughs> yeah i'm just gonna say this i think that this lawsuit is gonna end with apple changing the buttons to say short rent and long rent <laughs> um and i think that that's probably gonna end up solving all of the problems Up next, Kath is producing a feature, which, fuck yeah, and applying for grants. And we're going to talk through many of the questions she is having about producing this feature. Yeah. So um, I have so many questions. Um, I've only ever made... Bring them all on. I've only ever made shorts. So it's uh, my first feature that I've been in like an above-the-line role on. I feel really passionately about the story. I'll just quickly describe what it is. Um, it's a film that's set in the 1970s in LA. It's called Boyle Heights. And it is about um, a woman, a Mexican immigrant woman, who's sterilized against her, like against her will without her knowledge by LA County Hospital, which this actually happened, by the way. The U.S. was sterilizing Mexican immigrants during the 1970s in L.A. You know, after she realizes that she can't be a mother, she then reckons with, you know, finding a new identity for herself and, and figuring out, you know, what what her role is in this life. Um, so I feel really, really passionately about the story, which is great. And I feel passionately about the script. But I just am at that point where I've applied for a couple grants, waiting to hear back. I know I need to raise money. I've been told, you know, it would be good to attach a lead actor um, and maybe drum up some support from community organizations or whatever. But I kind of, I'm just like, what do I do first? Half the time it feels like I'm just sort of sitting around and I, and I feel like I could be doing more, but I don't exactly know what to do. <laughs> well, this is really cool. I second Charles's excitement for you. And I love that we're talking about this on the No Film School podcast. It's, it's what we were born, we, what this was born to do. Yeah, it's a huge thing. Um, it sounds like you have a great project and it sounds like you're excited about it. All important stuff. I guess having, I've done this before actually, but it's been a long time. So a lot of the particulars will have changed. But I think like, for example, you can sync sound now while you're shooting. But <laughs> what I think, I guess I'm really curious about the grants thing because money is the critical factor. And I'm curious, I guess I have questions because I'm curious and I'm sure the audience is too. Where do you find the grants that you're considering and what does the application process look like and how many do you apply to and, and how much have you built a budget to start with? Yeah. Um, those would be my first questions because obviously money is first. Yeah. So money is first. Um, so, you know, it, it's hard to find grants for narrative films. Um, there are a few that are out there. I applied to the Sundance Producing Lab. Um, we got into the second round, which is really great. So we're finding out in June. Um, and then I'm applying for, because it's a Latinx story, we're applying for the Nalip Latino media market. I think it's like a weekend where you come and bring your project and pitch it to a bunch of different studio executives and possible funders and producers and stuff like that. And then 
maybe get their buy-in or at least get some advice. So I'm applying to that and then also applying to the film independent producing lab. I'm applying mainly for like producer related stuff, although I know that we could, I'm sure they're like pre, uh, you know, development or pre-production grants that are out there. But um, yeah, so so there's a, there's a handful. Where's the writer director? Is it a one writer director? One writer director. Yeah. And are they applying to grants as well? So she has gotten some support for it in the past. The project has, she wrote this script like six years ago um, and had gotten some support in the past, but the project never really launched. So now what we're just sort of starting slow and I'm doing some producer um, grants, but I do want to apply for more. Um, But I also, my other question is like, is it only about grants? Can I, you know, can I be doing more work to find people who could maybe give us some funds up front? Oh my God, I have so many questions. Should I go with a casting director or should we just like have an open audition and like attach a random so person? I have so many thoughts. Thank you. Yeah, Charles, I have thoughts too, but Charles, why don't you jump in? Okay, so getting anything made in this world is like an uphill battle. I'm going to talk a lot about like running my production company and also the feature I directed. I have to shout out that I was not the lead producer or even any of the producers on my feature. It was produced by Kim Diltz and JT Arbogast. Shout out to them. They're wonderful. But I know a lot of what they did because I was talking to them a lot while they were producing it. And I've produced a bunch of other content and my production company did features. And um, I've been working on getting two other feature made in the last couple of years. So like the, the one thing to do is to not like the first thing is you can't do like nine different things in a given day, but you should continue to pursue multiple strategies at the same time. Like, obviously I don't expect you to like shift gears throughout the day through a bunch of different things, but like you should be looking for sort of three different things right now. One is network partnerships. Like, uh, you know, in this specific issue, if you can align yourself with a network of interested people, uh, Latinx groups that are willing to promote your project if you decide to crowdfund, uh, groups that are specifically interested in immigration issues, any groups that you can partnership that will um, help amplify your voice if and when you do decide to crowdfund, those are all going to be super invaluable. So like our film was about our Alzheimer's. And so, you know, they part our producers uh, wonderful, wonderful humans partnered with all of these Alzheimer's groups so that when we did crowdfunding, there was a large amount of people that were able to get the message out to because it's all about that. The second thing you're going to want to do is you're going to want to focus on attaching cast. And we actually ended up doing open auditions for hours because the writer, I was the director, the writer was also the star and he wasn't famous. So we did something on that one that I'm not going to tell you to do, which is because our lead wasn't going to be famous, they cast it themselves. We didn't work with the casting director. They just reached out to agents and managers directly and we did open edition. And like, we got amazing people, Ali Walker, who's been in uh, sons of anarchy and all sorts of stuff. And is married to the head of FX and um, Ellen Crawford from ER and Joyce Van Patten, who's been in 200 movies, including grownups and whatnot. We just got them by going to their representatives and asking. So like that type of person can just be gotten with auditions. Like Ali Walker came on auditioned. It was great. It was so much fun. Um, And she was perfect. The flip side is that none of those people will help you with financing. And the people who can help you with financing are the people that like sales agents will be interested in, distributors will be interested in. And all of those people you can't really get to that way. Because once they are powerful enough or have enough cloud or enough meaning or whatever, and 
since you have such a clear single lead, like unless you already know an actor that is perfect for it, that is an unknown, I wouldn't do auditions for that part just because you're going to find someone amazing and it's going to break your heart when you can't cast them because you can't finance it around them. Because in the end, our feature, it, it was limited how much money we could raise because the star was the writer um, who'd been in 30 Rock and stuff, but wasn't like famous in any way. So I would focus 100% on just trying to attach the right person with enough celebrity that it can help you get the money raised that you can raise. That is um, such a great point. And I actually just want to quickly add a question about that because, you know, for this, first of all, I think there unfortunately are not a lot of Latinx stars who have sort of like a number value attached to them on the financing side. Um, well, I would actually counter that you're thinking about America, but you should be thinking about Latin America. Mm. Because remember, there are so many, like, you know, the Billy Zane still gets to make a movie every year because he was in Titanic 25 years ago. And that movie was so famous in Latin America that, like, he gets and to make an action. he was so good in it. He was great. Billy Zane's wonderful. Um, but, like, oh, God, I hope he hasn't been canceled. Billy Zane's still fine, right? Because he's so good in Titanic. He's, um Anyway, so his celebrity internationally is enough for sales agents that you can still finance a movie with Billy Zane as your star because the math works out where they're like, oh, well, in these markets, we'll be able to sell this property for this. So it'll be able to all come together. So like you might end up with a star that you isn't even on your radar and isn't on a North American radar. And in America, you'll be facing the uphill battle of promoting the film with an unknown lead. But it's a star who's huge in Mexico and like three territories in Latin America where that's enough Mm -hmm. that it lets you cast it. So I would actually say that there's probably a bigger canvas than you think. Yeah. Let me jump in with something on that. A couple things. First off, um, I think we would want to direct anybody listening at this point and, and curious about this to the first feature, which is a series of podcasts that no film school founder, Ryan Koo did about getting amateur his netflix feature off the ground and the whole process but he also did a kickstarter so a lot of older no film school listeners and readers will will recognize that like he he went through the whole process kind of live and on no film school so some questions that we are touching on could be answered in some of that content but i also wanted to bring up that this idea charles mentions of attaching somebody who may not be a star that you know of in our world I spoke to Luke Greenfield, who's a filmmaker, director, writer on this podcast about his movie Half Brothers. One of the stars of Half Brothers is a big star abroad. He's not a star here. And part of how he how Luke Greenfield got the, the movie got greenlit was because they had a star who was perfect for the part, who he liked, who is not uh, a, as known a quantity here. I've had the experience, a feature I produced where we did everything we could to try and attach a name that could help us, and it didn't work. We ended up casting somebody we just really liked, who we knew personally, who worked around LA and with us, who was a friend, who ended up sort of becoming a star, and that helped us get distribution. So (laughs) strange things happen. Sometimes if you just make the gut choice, like, I like this person and they're the right person, but I think conventional wisdom is with Charles where it's like, if you fall in love with somebody who you auditioned and then you have to pick somebody else because of a financial concern. I would also say that there 
could be value in going to a casting person to try and attach someone. There could also be value in combing through movies and tell and streamers and stuff and international content and seeing if there's people who jump out at you like like talent and thinking even if it's not the lead cuz sometimes indies will get some money because you could have a name who's not the lead i don't know what the other parts are like that you could fit into it somehow and say like oh well this name helps you know it might help a little bit to have somebody recognizable in a supporting role and they believe in the project and then once you get that kind of creates a little momentum um i'm also thinking of how uh this is a funny another one from the no film school podcast archives but when i talked to the guys who made peanut butter falcon they told me that they i think they had a I think Josh Brolin tweeted that he was in a good mood and he wanted to give advice or something. And they tweeted at him a bunch and somehow or another they got a hold of him and they had like a one minute call of like, he gave them some advice about what they were doing. And then they started making calls around town and telling people that Josh Brolin was attached as a producer, which started opening up some doors, a crack like they, but they had that, it's worth a listen because those guys were just like, they were truly by any means necessary. Like they hustled every little corner. I guess I'm just trying to illustrate that there's a lot of ways I think that you can start. It's like snowball. It's like snowballing. Like you want to, you want to get that first kind of thing rolling downhill. That's like, maybe so-and-so just loves this as a producer. Maybe there's somebody who's a filmmaker who would be really interested in this story, the Latinx angle, the history of Los Angeles. Like, I don't know, but maybe there's somebody who comes in as another producer and then they maybe get you somewhere with with a talent or or something like that. Like that's that's where my mind right. is. I was actually going to say the next thing to do is you should probably start looking for a more senior producer. Mm-hmm. Because you 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 should probably work with a casting director to try and attach talent and I have had amazing smaller casting directors like, you know, the classic thing is on an indie budget, you you find a little money to to hire like a junior casting director. And I've had them like hunt down and attach names and, and do that. But like, really, you're going to have an easier time getting someone who's cast some names before because they're going to have really, you know, what you want is you want someone who already knows all of the agents and managers. So when they're calling them, it's a call from someone they already know. Mm-hmm. And that's how you end up getting, you know, the person who's just come off the hit Nickelodeon show that has enough clout to help you raise a half million dollars. And that casting director might end up coming, that relationship to a bigger casting director might end up coming through a connection to a bigger producer. So like I would say, in addition to trying to find a casting director to help you attach your lead, you probably also want to maybe start reaching out to bigger producers whose work you like, who you're like, I mean, you know, not whoever produced Nomadland, but like some, you know, movies from the last couple of years where you're like, oh, I like this person's sensibility. Uh, like, I would love if they executive produced my project. Mm. Like, and and executive produced often means bringing the money, but more often means bringing the connections and the relationships and knowing a casting director they can introduce you to, knowing those other things. Um, and then, yeah, thinking about the, in terms of the smaller part George was talking about earlier, the what they call the Robin Williams part, right? You know, Goodwill Hunting, yeah. Matt Damon and Ben Affleck had been in stuff, mm. but neither of them were famous. And so they deliberately wrote the Robin Williams part into Goodwill Hunting because they were like, well, we're going to need a celebrity celebrity if it's going to be the two of us starring in this. Like we're writing for it to star in it. They'd been in enough that they could get away with it, but they also had Robin Williams. 
And so like, is there another part and probably not the doctor who performs the surgery. Um, I was thinking, you know, Robin Williams is the doctor in Goodwill Hunting. Probably not that doctor. Maybe, who knows? Maybe you'll get someone of a big enough name that you can put a real celebrity into. Although as we were talking with the Oscars, celebrity doesn't mean what it used to, but there's still people that mean things. Right. Oh, one thing to know that I learned a while ago in this process is there are a bunch of actors who famously do anything for their day rate. Uh, He's gone now, but Dennis Hopper did anything for 10 grand a day. There's an actor who's not gone, so I won't say who it is, but does anything for a hundred a week, a hundred grand a week. will do anything. Wow. Um, (laughs) Because of this, they, they don't help you with sales agents. Because they are in too many things. I, I was This was way before I directed my first feature. The first feature I was ever attached to as a director, we landed one of these actors. Um, you know, we'd raised a little bit of money. We had an, enough starter funds that we'd hired a casting director and we we're going out to people and we got one of these people. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be directing a movie with this person in it. And this person's a very good actor, but also just says yes to everything who meets his rate. And then we were talking to sales agents and every sales agent knows this about these actors. And it doesn't move the needle with them at all because there's going to be nine movies with this person in it every year. It's kind of like how there was a time where I would have definitely seen a bad Nick Cage movie because it's like, well, Nick Cage is just fun to watch. But now I can't possibly see every Nick Cage movie because I don't have enough time. There aren't enough hours in the day. He makes them so fast. I mean, these are more famous. I'm trying to think of like famous character actors, like people who are famous and have been in enough things that you're like, surely that would help me if they're in my movie. And then you're right. like, oh no, actually, at this attaching point, them to something. If, yeah. if you got Nick Cage in your movie, I actually still think it would help you with sales. <laughs> it would um, probably. Um, yeah. I think Nick Cage is still up there in the rankings. Can he play the woman, the lead? Probably. This is really great. So I have three, <laughs> you know, I was jotting down notes Charles, you said three things, networking with organizations. No, I, my three things were, uh, yeah, networks, like big networks of people. So if you crowdfund, you have networks that are interested. Right. Attaching cast and then finding a more senior producer. I have a couple follow-up questions. Bring it. So, you know, I've been, I, I imagine there are a lot of organizations out there that would be interested in in partnering at, in order to like help promote if we decide to crowdfund. I've been holding off on on writing to any of them directly because I'm still not exactly sure what the ask is at this point because it's quite early days. We don't have an actor attached. We haven't decided that we're going to crowdfund, although we might. I don't exactly know, you know, how what percentage of the budget we'd need to crowdfund for. So how do you how would you go about, you know, what would you put in an email to one of these say there's an organization out there that could be a right fit for our movie? What would the ask be at this stage? Or is it too early to make those connections? I mean, I don't think it's ever too early to do almost anything. I mean, you can't color grade before you shoot. (laughs) But like in terms of outreach, outreach is such a long, complicated, ongoing process that like you might as well just start now. And it really is just a I'm looking to connect with I'm looking to connect, uh, you know, let's say you were making so you're making a history, uh, a movie about the history of the Volvo in America, right? Like a movie about the Volvo coming to America in the 50s and the three-point safety belt and Niels Bolin and saving lives. 
and so you wanted to reach like all of the regional Volvo organizations because there's like Volvo clubs. I, it, it would literally just be a matter of like reaching out to them one at a time and be like, hey, I'm working on this project. It's a film about this thing that I think is really relevant to what you guys are working on. It's really early stages, but I'm looking to connect with other organizations that are interested in this same topic and maybe might want to see more media about this be created. Here's my track record of stuff I've done before. And um, if you guys are ever open to like finding a way for me to like share my message with your audience or, or any other things you could do to like help move this project along, I would just love to connect with you. Maybe have a chat. So great. I'm going to save this podcast and listen to it again and again. <laughs> this is very helpful. Then you mentioned the phrase starter funds. And I feel like that's something that we could maybe crowdfund. What, you know, what's the sort of first, what's included in the like first round of funding? What are you looking to pay for? Casting director? Casting director. So just cast, like, yeah, just casting director. Well, you need, you also need to think about, it's tricky. Like, when are you going to start pre-production? Like when you get closer to that, you need to figure out like what your cash flow is going to be. So you can like front load certain things or you can delay certain things, but mm, cash mm-hmm. flow once you're once you're in the heat of it, which I think you're quite a ways mm-hmm. from. But like that that becomes like it's like a cascade. It's like you need to secure a certain amount of funding and have it available by a certain time, but then you can wait until you know you finish. And this is the famously like producers skip town and stuff with bills unpaid. Famously like scummy producers because they will like shoot the movie, get it in the can, disappear, you know, and not pay anybody. Um, but that, but that's, you know, like, you know, that's why unions and guilds exist. SAG won't let you do that. So yeah, for example, I don't know. It, there's so many other things that could come up. Like say you're, you're assuming you're going to do unions and you're going to be within a certain budget range, or maybe you get a SAG agreement for like a micro budget because that's what you can raise. Like once you start getting an idea of what you can raise, you'll start being able to answer other questions. But you know, if you work with SAG, you'll need to put a certain amount of money entirely into SAG, like the full amount you might owe, mm. because they hold it securely. So you can't not pay the talent. Mm. So they take all of it plus some, and then then they they dole it out. But so you you need to have a lot of cash cash flow up front. We have talked about WeFunder before um, on No Film School in general, and if you're looking at crowdfunding, it's an interesting route because it's equity in the project as opposed to people like on Kickstarter where they're buying maybe, you know, t-shirts or I don't know what, something else you're selling, an associate producer credit for $10,000 or whatever, however you figure out your pricing. So look at WeFunder because as you go through the options, that's one to consider where you can actually, you know, you you could set, I'm pretty sure you could set up WeFunder and then you could contact some of these groups you're thinking mm. and you can invite them to the table that way as having equity in the project if that's something they would do there may be some that would never even consider something like that but definitely something to think about but i think charles is definitely right that there's no harm in ever having like a reach out early that establishes a connection and then if it doesn't go anywhere you know maybe it will down the road that's you know there will be various times where where you could need something or even want them to publicize the finished product. Right. Okay. That's so yeah. helpful. I mean, for me, 
for me, I think of those groups as more amplifiers. Like when you're running a crowd Kickstarter campaign or crowdfunding, you want like the Volvo Club of Bessemer, Alabama to like post your things. Like most nonprofits are probably not going to be able it, – it would be complicated for a nonprofit to invest in a project through WeFunder themselves, but they could certainly amplify your project to their following, which is what happened with us. Like I don't think we got – I think we got some – direct support from Alzheimer's organizations, but very little compared to sort of the marketing push, both during early fundraising and also during distribution. We did a uh, theatrical run and we like, they were one of the people that we marketed through was this film about Alzheimer's coming to your town. So finding ways to have those networks of people that can connect are a big deal. And then, yeah, the next thing I was going to say for George is like the proof of funds is so huge Mm -hmm. with SAG is, is having to put all that up front I mean, it's a real testament to the power of SAG that that is an unavoidable thing. But early funds are really all about attaching your lead cast. Mm-hmm. So the ability to like find money to hire a high-end casting director with, because there's casting directors that have relationships that have like a very set fee that you can just go hire them and, you know, 10, 20 grand, you've got a casting director, they're going to go out and start getting, I mean, it's usually that and some producer credit and attach and back end, but like, they're going to go out and start working to attach people for you. And like, that's sort of a set thing. Mm -hmm. So you can use those early funds to try and do that. Especially you're, you're in such a great place. So many people I know write these indies and some of them are great, but it's like, it's nine leads Mm -hmm. going on. And it's like, you have one lead, Mm -hmm. you have one person Mm -hmm. and it's like, Oh, well then it's so strategic. It's like, okay, it is this person's story. Cause the other thing that's great. I remember a movie, some movies I worked on when I was a DP and a gaffer early in my career, you would end up with people that are like not famous enough to raise like $10 million for a movie, but are like famous enough, you know, like people who are in sitcoms or whatever, who are like just famous enough to raise a million dollars off of. Mm. And, but they really want to be the lead. They never got to be the lead on the sitcom. They were a supporting part. Um, and they get to be the lead in this. And because of that, they get involved in helping. I mean, I gaffed this one movie that Chris Masterson was in. He was very nice. I have no anecdotes. I don't know if there's any drama with him, but like he wasn't the lead in Malcolm in the Middle, but he was in Malcolm in the Middle and everybody knew him. And and I I believe he was involved in helping finish the fundraising for the end of the movie. I these the rumor I heard on set because he got to be the lead. It was his movie. He was the, you know, and so like you have a movie where a person gets to be the lead. So you could potentially even end up making a connection with an actor in that liminal space where they're in stuff, but they don't get to be the lead and they want to be the lead. Yeah. Where they will end up helping the process. It doesn't always happen, but that can is I something tell you that a funny? Happen. Can I yes. tell you a funny related story to that? Because you mentioned Malcolm in the Middle and it's so similar to this. I worked on a very small, very small indie project and there was a producer, produce, production company that was interested and involved in talking to us. And they were not just blowing smoke. Well before Breaking Bad, Brian Cranston was like on the lookout for interesting types of projects to take on because he had been a sitcom dad, but he hadn't been in anything kind of raw or unique. And our indie project was one of the things passed along to him. I believe he passed, but it was just like, it's just funny how to me, it just illustrates that, I mean, obviously he passed, he wasn't in it. So I was being facetious, but like, there's a wealth of like extremely talented people out there who are looking for perhaps something that's going to strike 
you know, a match and like light fire to their career in like a unique way. And like Charles is illustrating, I think really well that there could be somebody who's only ever been able to play this part or is done with this and they're financially secure, but they're like, I really want to flex in this way. Like maybe your project is the thing. Maybe there's the part in there that's that. And and you just need to, it's all about the proper channels, you know? Like that's why I think when Charles says casting director first, it's like casting director first or, you know, producer who has access to those channels. Because if yeah. you just can get in through those channels, they can look at it. They might pass like Brian Cranston did, but they might say yes, in which case you're the one who's taking advantage of that extremely talented person just looking to get outside the mm. box. Okay, so we're out of time, but you had some budget questions, and I want to say next week or next time you're on the episode, we're going to talk budget. Great. You ready for that? That sounds great. Awesome. We're going to wrap up with, with, with something we kicked off last year in the in the beginning of the pandemic called Deep Cuts, where we pick a theme for the week and we all talk about a movie on that theme. The theme for this week, Steven Spielberg gave an interview this week talking about a movie that left him stunned as a kid, which is Lawrence of Arabia, which is a movie that is stunning. I mean, it's magnificent. It's like a, a, a safe bet. Um, so we're going to do Deep Cuts this week, a movie where you walked out of the movie theater completely stunned. Boogie Nights in 1997, I was stunned early on. It was just one of those things where I knew as soon as it got going that I was like, oh, this is the good stuff. Like, this is it. This is the kind of thing that I want to see in movies. Like, I could tell from the tone. And I loved it. And I came out just like, wow, that's what movies can be. In my mind, that was the like, they can be funny, dark, weird provocative and they can open up worlds that I didn't know about in like this weird self-reflexive meta kind of way. I love the tone and it, it just like absolutely hooked me and I'd loved movies before that. I'd seen a lot. I enjoyed, but that was the first time I had that experience in the theater and then immediately coming out where I was like, Oh yeah, that's like, that's what movies should be able to do. It's funny, everybody's so different. Like, it makes sense to me that for Spielberg, it was Lawrence of Arabia. It was the grandeur, the scale, a lot of things that he would try to mimic that that he sees as like the the holy grail of movie making and cinema is in that. And you can see it in his work that he was chasing it. And for me, for whatever reason, it was like, can there be a tragic comedy about like weirdo porn stars in the 70s like to me was like the man that's what movies can be but it still is in my mind like this kind of like high watermark of can you do all that like to me i like paul thomas anderson but i don't feel like he's ever done anything as good as boogie nights that's just my opinion um but for me boogie nights was that was it punch drunk love man that's my favorite oh whoa well, it's not my—it's not the double... one that made me stunned, but of the PTA movies, that's oh, oh, okay. I thought I was like, I was like, wow, we're both like that's so funny that it would be another PT Anderson, but not. Um, I want to go with a recent one, which I don't remember if I've talked about it on the podcast before, but I feel like it was slighted by the Oscars. Burning that came out the same year as Parasite, another Korean movie, but obviously, you know, only one Korean movie can get picked for best foreign film. So burning totally got slighted. Did either of you guys see burning? No. Oh my God. It's so good. It's so good. It's about this sort of like love triangle and there's a, there's a sort of sense of mystery. And the main character is this kid um, who's wants to be a novelist, but like 
isn't really doing much with his life when he falls in love with his girl. Anyway, what I loved about it is my boyfriend and I walked away from this movie and I was convinced that this one thing had happened and he was convinced that this totally other opposite thing happened. And like the ending scene said something completely different to both him and me. And I was like, how can we both have such a different interpretation of what this movie is or means? But like both of our ideas, I think, hold up. And so it's like burning is just this incredible mystery that I will never be able to unlock fully. And that's what I love about it. It's so good. That's amazing. It's also based on a Haruki Murakami short yeah, story, which made me want to watch oh, it at the time. He's, yeah, he's awesome. Now I'm now you've piqued my curiosity. And then I had a baby, and so I didn't watch any more movies that year. But yeah, all right, burning. I'm gonna go see it. So mine is actually I saw this movie in college in on Laserdisc, like not even a film print, like on Laserdisc in the basement of the library. Literally, my friends and I walked out of the library and skipped the rest of the day and just went to the there was like an arboretum where I went to college and we were like we can't do it like we just went to the arboretum and like sat looking at trees and smoking cigarettes because college and uh it's wings of desire by vim vendors shot by oh, Henri yeah. ali khan starring and it's lieutenant just, colombo isn't peter falk in that movie did i just make that up peter falk is in wings of desire yeah. you are correct i've never actually seen any colombo i only know oh of colombo through the osmosis but um i don't know that it is starring well there's a character Columbo. in he that is... movie who's like look it's lieutenant colombo <laughs> <laughs> it's so great but i mean it's starring bruno gans that many of you later know from the hitler memes in downfall he was hitler in downfall and you've seen many memes of his scene in downfall being interpreted about nike or kanye west or whatever and uh but this is a younger bruno gans a pre-hitler bruno gans playing an angel who wants human connection and so much that it's willing to give up uh, being an angel to connect to humans. It sounds like a cheesy Hollywood concept. It actually got remade as a cheesy Hollywood movie. But Wings of Desire, man, it totally, it's such a great example that like execution matters so much. Like it's such a cheesy pitch. Like if I was hanging out with a buddy and they were like, yeah, man, I'm going to make this movie and it's about angels and this angel falls in love with a trapeze artist and gives up immortality to feel love. <laughs> I don't know that I would be that excited by it, but it just works. And yeah, the rest of the day was just like parliaments, looking at trees, thinking about life. Parliaments, huh? You were a parliaments guy? I liked that my uh, thumb could could uh, like rub the little hole in back. Uh, the depression on the filter, yeah. I mean... There is the the magic. I, I, we started talking. This is full circle. So we started talking about the Oscars and all the ways it doesn't really do the job, right? And then we talked about Kath making a movie and getting started. And now we're talking about the movies you see that that like stun you, make you spin. And I think that there's a cyclical nature to this episode that that's sort of beautiful to me because that's what it's kind of all about right like that like seeing those movies or connecting with those stories and finding the stories as a filmmaker that make you feel like you can do that like you can create that and i guess the thing where the oscars just kind of doesn't it can't or it doesn't really connect with all those pieces but that you know that's the good stuff is is feeling like you need to just sit and stare at the trees 
smoke a cigarette because the movie was so powerful. It feels ridiculous to plug our pluggables now, doesn't it? Yeah, we don't have to do all that. So, yeah, that was the No Film School podcast this week. If you do smoke cigarettes, try Parliament. They've got that fun indentation in back. If you've quit, good for you. Don't go back. Uh, the next time Kath is here, we're going to talk about budget stuff. Everybody go watch a movie and then sit outside and like really soak in the awe. <laughs> <laughs>